Kia ora and welcome to this episode in Season 3 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I sat down with Justin Latif, a journalist steeped in the power of community reporting. Justin's career has seen him reporting for the likes of Stuff and The Spin-Off. He has worked as the editor for community papers in South Auckland. He now has his own community news entity running as a charitable trust focused on his community in Mangere. For the focus of the discussion, we turn our attention to Ihu Mātou, where activism to protect the integrity of the land hit our headlines across our nation's news outlets. We will continue to resist colonialism, the confiscation of whenua, the pillaging of tinoranga tiratanga and mana motuhake, the desecration of wahitapu and the denigration of our environment, our taiao papatuanuku. For Justin, what was taking place there wasn't simply a story he picked up once it had gained traction. Because it was connected to his community, Justin had been in and following the journey from the very beginning, listening to those involved and advocating for their story to be told. Kia ora Justin, welcome to our little studio here in Penrose. It is a pleasure to have you uh, in the studio, especially since you and I have known each other for a little while. You bring a uniqueness to uh, journalism that I'm looking forward to unpacking. But let's start with first question. Why journalism? Why did you get involved in journalism? Uh, I think it was almost by accident. I did a personality test (laughs) at uni. I was studying uh, PE. And I was going to be a PE teacher, but I was, uh, let's say, just not feeling it, feeling like, oh, all these 30 kids, you know, having I do these um, placements and just feeling like, oh, my gosh, this is so intense. So I took a personality test and it said um, journalist was one of the options. So I applied for AUT and didn't get in. And then I found out one of my mates had also applied and he decided not to do it. And so then I got a letter very shortly after that saying I was in. So it was kind of almost by accident. And then um, have just kind of kept doing it <laughs> since then. PE. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't expect to hear that answer. That you. That you started out in PE. I mean, this. I was obsessed. Have been obsessed with sport, mostly cricket, um, since I was came to New Zealand as a five-year-old and yeah just I was a I thought I was going to become a professional cricketer (laughs) (laughs) I'd gone to England to try and try my luck there I had got injured a knee then went to Dunedin to see if I could crack the scene there injured another knee and um, just kept thinking you know if I just play long enough and I, I, I could break into a first class team or so I never I never did obviously and probably my injuries and my talent probably wasn't quite enough to ever make it but yeah I was I was planning to be in, involved in sport in some way so I guess journalism was a probably the next you know progression from that I was a sports journalist to start off with um, but I actually found it really frustrating because I often felt like I wished I was on the other side of the microphone or the one being written about so I got out of sports journalism partly because it made me feel 
like missed playing sport too much and missed playing cricket. So um, and then I just got a, I guess got the urge or got the itch for um, news and politics and all the other parts of journalism that that I guess I'm into now. So how did the career progress? Where did you end up? Yeah, so I was um, started out at the Western Leader as a community journalist, went into stuff, worked back in sport actually, and then just in general news, sub-editing. And then one of the patterns of my career is I tend to get a bit over it, take a break, go and do something else. So for about five years there, I went and worked in for a community law centre, worked in a, for a, the Salvation Army's lobby organisation, did youth work for a couple of years, and then went back into journalism as the editor of the Manuka Courier, which is a community newspaper in South Auckland. Got a bit burnt out, then went worked in comms for a couple of years, then went back into journalism, uh, worked at the spin-off, and then got a bit burnt out. <laughs> and I'm just about to go back into journalism as a chief of staff at Pacific Media Network, which is um, radio and online news organisation. Yeah, so so back into journalism again. <laughs> and you've got another, you've got another little, uh, well it's not little, you've got another little project on the side which we'll get into shortly. What I find interesting about the arc of your career and where your journalism has focused is there seems to be quite a bent towards community activism. I remember, was it 2016, the park up for homes, where I remember seeing you uh, on the news. You were being interviewed as part of the story. Community activism, what part does that play in your life? Yeah, I think that's been another probably thread, is that I've often felt frustrated that my journalism only can go so far. And so that at times I've tried to, yeah, enact change in community and, and yeah and sometimes that's meant being in the story rather than writing the story and so yeah we, we organised I guess a protest or a, an, an activism type thing around because at, at that time a lot of people were sleeping in cars and you know one of the ironic things I think was we talk a lot about people sleeping in hotels and emergency accommodation but during that time there wasn't any of that people either were Slept in their cars, families, you know, there was a whole thing about kids doing their homework in the boot of their van, you know, before the sun went down, you know, that was the, and that's only five or six years ago, and yet now we're sort of, yeah, and it's good that that has ended, and now we're, we've got a new challenge around transitional housing, but that was an issue that we, my wife and I, um, you know, and a whole bunch of friends took a real focus on, and I guess the activism thing has probably come out of where we've lived and I, I do have a bent towards community journalism and really like that on the ground storytelling and so that has led me to hear those stories and want to do something more than just write a story and move on to the next thing the next day and so from West Auckland and we've moved to South Auckland and in both I guess scenarios wanted to you know make a contribution to our community and and so that that has led to us to do community activism I guess or community development is another term and and through that we also started a community magazine around that time that we did that protest actually and um, yeah and I guess that's been something we've had ticking along right through since about 2014 yeah which is just another I guess another version of journalism 
Can I ask, and this might not be clear cut, did you start your journalism with that bent towards community and that idea of enacting change and justice? I mean, you started out in sport, but was that always there? Or was it getting involved, hearing the stories, and then the community then has influenced you towards that? I'm, I'm interested in the how those two things marry together and how that got started. Yeah, I mean, I think when I started being a journalist, I was thinking, oh, I want to be work at the Herald, I want to be on you know, TV one, but I think, you know, my, I'm not, I'm maybe that's not my personality or maybe I'm not that good. <laughs> I don't know, but I guess I, I, I gained a passion for community journalism and I, I gained a interest in just those everyday stories and probably, yeah, there's probably a bunch of reasons why I didn't progress in that direction. I, I could have gone and worked at the Herald on Sunday at one stage, but you know, chose not to because of some family stuff and probably it's one of those sliding door things where you, you make small decisions and you end up going in a different direction than what you originally thought out you would do. Yeah, I guess it, the more I've done community journalism, the more my passion for it has grown. And and I also just think the more I'm in it, I also see the benefit and the, the, the power of it. And, and now I wouldn't want to be... The Herald, the editor. <laughs> this re- this really interests me because you're in a community, or anybody involved in their community who does journalism could very easily be overwhelmed by the level of the problems that they're seeing and the sense of hopelessness. Uh, yet it seems to have sparked for you uh, the desire to then be involved and to help affect change. In order to get involved and to to help affect change, you have to be stupid enough to think you can make a difference. And I think that's one of the reasons I've gone in and out of journalism in these roles, because when I was the editor of the Manica Courier, it did probably at times feel overwhelming. I felt like, oh man, this community is struggling with so many things and your name is out there, people recognise you just in the town centres and you feel kind of a bit of an obligation to make sure that you're speaking up for them or you're pushing their stories out there, you're um, you know, do, doing them justice. And at times that felt overwhelming and feeling like, oh, we're just not, we're not doing as good a job as we could do and, and feeling overwhelmed by that. So it's taken me a, a, probably a while to really come to terms with that. And even when I worked at the spin-off, I did a lot of coverage of the of COVID and and of a lot of the outbreaks were in South Auckland. You know, the the really big outbreak for the Delta outbreak was literally a church around the corner from my house, and so, you know, you just felt like, oh man, it just feels like ev- everywhere around me is a national story, and it I've got to find a way to cover this and also be present at home and not catch COVID and do do it justice, you know, do do the story justice and always feeling like you're not quite doing that. Yes, yeah, it's been a constant kind of bugbear of mine feeling like, because I, I guess the other thing is knowing you, you're going to see these people in the supermarket or when you drop your kids off at school and feeling like, well, I make a, the story has to be right, you know, and, and sometimes that pressure feels a bit much and comms as a, trajectory I can go down when I'm just <laughs> feel like I can't do it justice um, but then again I you know I, I keep coming back to journalism because it just feels too important to like let go of I guess 
Yeah, and a significant part of that for you is the little community newspaper you're talking about in Mangere, uh, 275 Times, which is about to relaunch. So I'm I'm guessing in order to kick off something like that again, you have to have got to a space where you feel like you can manage that, that weight of, uh, of that feeling of responsibility for the community. Yeah, and I think what we maybe... What I've done probably right through my life is take on too much responsibility or that too much weight and just trying to keep reminding myself that we just, we're you know, it's like that Pink Floyd song. We're, in a way, we're like just putting another brick in the wall, but it's a, it's a, a wall of good stuff, <laughs> not like what they were singing about. But And so our job is really just to, to do that one little thing and not expect this one little magazine or story to change the world but it's just a it's a step towards you know is, is it a Nelson Mandela quote about or maybe Martin Luther King about you know the the arc of justice always bends towards yeah, yeah the arc yeah. of the universe is long but it bends towards yeah, justice yeah. and so every little action can help bend at that arc I guess and then just trying to keep realistic mm. um, and keep realizing and I think that's why family and children are good is like they keep you grounded and and to be honest, you know, maybe I will feel overwhelmed again by it all, but I'm, we're just going to do it because um, it also just feels like, well, we feel more alive when we're doing stuff that matters. And um, yeah, and, and also stuff that we're good at, you know, like I've been involved with lots of NGOs and they do amazing things, but I'm often thinking I'm not really that good at this NGO stuff where you're sitting in lots of meetings and, um, you know, that's just a different type of activism I guess and trying to work in your in your strengths as well and yeah being okay with also the outcome not always being exactly what you want mm. I guess the other th- big thing for us is like I was a little bit involved with politics and in, in last year's mayoral elections and it really st- afterwards reading a lot of research around how voter turnout there's a direct correlation between voter turnout and the, the now number of media outlets and journalists who live in those areas really and I was like, wow, that's so interesting. And so basically you can tag. And if you looked at the voter turnout in Auckland last year, the, the areas with community magazines or like one of you know, those little things you find at a cafe, like Remy Wera has, a, has quite a number of these. They have really high voter turnout. You know, North Shore has for high voter turnout. They also have a, probably a more active local media. And in South Auckland, we virtually have no local media or journalists, I mean, there's one or two who really focus on South Auckland, write about South Auckland, and our community newspapers, yeah, tend to have more generic stories, less local stories. And so it's like, if we can just little by little, you know, involve the community in what's happening, maybe we can see a bigger change in terms of voter turnout, which I think is a, you know, is always a good precursor for like engaged communities as people vote. Mm. Mm. Justin, thinking about coming in and out of journalism, a lot of people don't operate that way, in and out, in and out. Why do you think that's played out for you like that? Um, yeah, I think for a number of reasons, but I think one of the times that I you know, left journalism was when I was at the Manukau Courier as the editor, and I think the, the weight of responsibility of feeling like we, we had to um, yeah, do our community justice probably became too much for me and I I probably what you'd probably describe as an anxiety disorder or condition developed and and I um, started having panic attacks and I remember one particular 
incident where we were going to miss um, potentially miss a paper deadline, which carried with it some sort of financial penalties for the company if we missed it because we couldn't do some technical stuff with our computers. And I just started to like have this panic attack inside a supermarket where I was just trying to work out how we were going to you know, make the deadline when things weren't working properly and the whole room started spinning. And and I think at that point I was just like, oh man, this is getting really intense. And, you know, we had um, young kids who weren't sleeping well and I was just like, I just need to get out of this job and find something that's not going to like impact me in such a bad way that it was and have me in this sort of state of constant anxiety that I was in. And then having these, you know, potential for attacks um so yeah I, I i left at that time and i thought to myself you know i can't just make sure i never um, admit this or tell anyone and i need to find a decent job that you know gives me a good next step so that i just was worried that um if anyone ever realized i was struggling that i would never get another job in journalism and so that was one of the yeah and, and, and it's, it's something that i've struggled again with when I worked at the spin-off um, but in that situation you know they were I was able to access some counseling through um, like an EPA program and was probably able to work out some really good ways of dealing with it through exercise and through um, yeah other things but I guess that was one of the things that has been a I guess a struggle is just learning how to yeah deal with that that mental, toll I guess of, of trying to do the story justice. Can I ask uh, just for a little more detail so that others listening in because this is not unusual in journalism uh, all the people going through it think it's unusual because nobody's talking about it for that very reason nobody wants to look weak and like they can't do the job can I ask that pan- those panic attacks or that panic attack particularly in the supermarket can you give a little more detail of, of what that looked like for you what was physically playing out? Um so basically I was just I was freaking out that we couldn't work out how to upload some photos basically cuz our our internet connection wasn't very good that day. And so I was I thought I, I was just like getting really lightheaded, felt like fainting the whole day. I was like I just need to buy some food that will um like some sugary chocolate bars. Maybe it's a blood sugar thing. And it just wasn't, you know, like a basically I just needed to sit down and chill out for 10 minutes really rather than trying to fix the problem but yeah and so that that was and so that just felt like I was about to collapse in the middle of the supermarket and yeah it was just really scary because suddenly the room's spinning and you're trying to put your um pin into the you know fpos machine and you yeah you just think you're just like oh, I've just got to somehow walk from here to the car and not collapse um yeah it was just very weird you know, and I didn't have another one like that again, but it certainly found myself just like with a super short fuse. Um, it probably explains a few angry editors <laughs> out there. Um, but yeah, no, I, mean, I don't think I ever took it out on anyone in the newsroom. But yeah, I was certainly on edge for much of that year um, or as the year went on and yeah, realised I needed to change things if I was going to operate as a human. Mm. When you access the service available via EAP, 
because uh, EAP and there's another one called Benistar. There's uh, most of our organisations now have access to free counselling uh, that can be organised. So when you accessed EAP, what did that look like? What was what were the counselling sessions like? I mean, I mean, this will probably come as a surprise to you know, the spin-off because not like I told anyone. I just they just told me when I started there. Oh, we've got an EAP program. When I was telling my wife, oh, I'm starting to like really struggle. Um, I it also snapped my Achilles um, at the time, and so I wasn't. I was sort of confined a lot to home. Yeah, so I wasn't going to the office. So there was just a whole bunch of sort of environmental factors, and and she was like, "Well, why don't you just?" you know, do the EAP thing, just email. So I just emailed like a random person and they gave me some times and I um, hobbled my way into her office because <laughs> I was still on crutches. And uh, just, I, did, I had three free sessions, um, essentially. I, I guess it came out of somewhere. but um, And, you know, just made a plan on how to like deal with my stress and anxiety, um, yeah, worked out. It wasn't sort of like a depression, more like an anxiety thing. And um, so we didn't go down the medication route or anything. And um, yeah, uh, for me, it's about flushing the cortisol out of my body with like a like a, a bike ride or a run or a walk or, or going to just the driving range and hitting some golf balls. Because um, yeah, for a while I couldn't really do much exercise, so I was having to find other ways to... Um, you know, breathe some some oxygen, some outside air, and and go for a walk, or just do something that's allowed the the body to move and 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 deal with the stress physically in a way, and you know that has made a huge difference and probably got me for a lot of stress mm. full times in more recent times um, as well. Yeah, I want to applaud you for having the courage. Uh, to go and talk to somebody about it. Media chaplaincy exists as a first step in that as well. If people feel too nervous to access EAP, we're here to have a conversation. But I think it's really important that people hear from someone like yourself that this stuff goes on, that this stuff happens, because there are so many people struggling on their own with it, thinking they're the only one when there are so many going through it. And I know that for you, uh, there are others who were working with you who've had no idea, so they're going to listen to this and hear it for the first time. So Thank you for laying that out. I appreciate it. And the thing I would say is that I do sometimes regret not talking to my managers or bosses about it because I know, particularly at the spin-off, that they would have been really supportive because it was one of the most supportive working environments I've ever been in. And, yeah, and I wish, you know, I think sharing those struggles can help. And having talked to journalists who I used to work with and realising that some of them were struggling with stuff and we never... I, because I didn't share what I was going through, um, it didn't give them a chance to maybe share what they were going through. And so you all kind of like, um, maybe suffer in silence is a bit dramatic, but you sort of push through without realising that you're in a room of other people who are also got a whole bunch of stuff happening in their lives and they're struggling. And I think that's also can be really, yeah, positive and powerful if, if you talk to have those hard conversations but it is super hard and I've always been very nervous about yeah admitting to struggling with stuff because you feel like well I don't want to you know curtail my career and be written off as a someone who can't you know handle things so yeah that that is I get that. 
Mm. We're going to dive in a second into the story that you've chosen to focus on uh, for this discussion. But first, very quickly, because we we don't have time to unpack 275 times a lot, but if people want to find out more, how do, how do they find out more? Um, the website's 275times.com. <laughs> uh, hopefully I'll be starting some sort of sub-stack alongside it, and there's a Facebook page. You, you should be able to search it. There's not anyone else doing something called 275 times. So the 275 is refers to the phone suffix in Mangere. I guess it's our attempt to like kind of put community journalism back in the community and have it really grounded, tell really good local stories, and um, yeah, we'll see what happens. It's something that is, is happening a lot overseas. There's a huge resurgence in community journalism, particularly in the States. And um, yeah, I think why not? try doing that similar stuff over here as well. Yeah, I think it's great. So if anybody wants to look at it as a possible model, I'd just encourage people to, to check out that uh, website and check it out on Facebook and just watch it as it progresses. All right, well, you've chosen to talk about Ihumato. So for those who might have been absolutely oblivious to what was going on or just caught snippets of what was happening, give us a summation of the story. And I'll start by just saying that, you know, this is not my story. This is a story about a community in Mangere, uh, in a part of Mangere called Ihimata. It was a small, 99% Māori community, sort of on the edge of Mangere towards sort of near the airport. And um, this huge chunk of land was owned by a um, farming family, and they decided they were going to sell it to a property development company to be turned into about 400 houses. Now this would have totally overwhelmed the small, smaller Māori community that was uh, living alongside that farm and basically would have just, yeah, changed the nature of that community from being a, yeah, just, it's this beautiful place. It's the oldest continuous settlement of Māori in New Zealand, as far as I understand. It's also just a place where a lot of people from Māori go for recreation because it's so beautiful and walks and you know bike and run out there so it's sort of by and the by but I guess that the main issue was that this community felt like this land had been taken away from them back in the 1860s rather and un- quite unfairly. Um, so let, let's just quickly mention that history for those who might not yeah. be aware. Uh, Ihumato is significant for Māori in the area. It's where the first king and the Kingitanga movement was uh, crowned from what I'm aware. And then the taking over of the land happened uh, as the Waikato invasion was uh, was beginning I believe and uh, there was a force that came in asked them to pledge their allegiance to the crown they wouldn't do it and I've been reading the history it was a completely unfair demand uh, they were wanting to push against the Kingitanga movement uh, the governor at the time and it created the pretext to be able to take the land which was demanding the pledge of allegiance and so when that wasn't going to happen invasion was threatened people fled the crown took the took the land yeah and so I guess fast forward my kind of personal connection is that a friend of mine was one of the main organisers. I went to journalism school with her, Kiani Matatasipu, and um, so she had kind of, I mean, I think the first I heard about it, she says, I'm writing a press release, can you just proofread it for me? I might have been working in comms at the time, and she thought I probably knew how to write a press release. <laughs> and so I did that, and then we we had just, we were just about to start, or we'd started our community magazine, and so we did a, a couple of stories on it, and then I moved into the Manukau Courier, and so again, 
followed it that way. But yeah, I guess I was sort of always just following it as a friend of, you know, our kids went to the same kindy. I'd often see her parents or her mum and her um, at the kindy drop-off or the kid daycare drop-off. And so, yeah, I guess we had a really personal connection to them as the organisers of this campaign to, to get the land back for the use of the local iwi. And then I guess covering it through different ways. Um, we covered it in our local mag that we'd started. We actually made a newspaper called Soul Times, which was the name of their campaign um, for them and worked on that. And I guess the reason, one of the reasons we started our community magazine was to actually be something that local groups who wanted to stand up for their rights could use as a way to communicate to the community. And so that's what sort of happened. I mean, at, at one stage, I think almost every front page article was about the campaign. And it, uh, from what I recall, the kind of peak it hit around 2019, mm. but it had been years leading into that from what I'm aware. So when you started following the story, because everybody will remember the national headlines around 2019 when things were really kicking in, but you were following that story years before that. Yeah, literally I went to the first meeting that they had at the Manukau Magpies Rugby League Club in 2014 or 2015, and there was like a big community meeting. And yeah, I guess we followed it all the way through, and just seeing it was a very small group, and they didn't have buy-in from everyone locally, and so, but they obviously managed to over time, but it was a very small group, and what they were able to do, and the case they were able to make for what eventually happened was incredible, and just the power of... And I guess what I thought was so amazing is they were able to, it became a national story and, and, you know, everyone kind of came and converged on that place. But they were able to build a local movement of local people, not just Māori, not just Pākehā, but Pacific Māori, you know, a huge local movement. And I, you know, it just was very cool to be, play a small role in, in helping do that I guess but um and it just impacted me and just seeing how you can build a local movement through really you know having a just cause and having your heart in the right place and, and speaking to things that the community really value and and you know I got the chance right at the end of that to sit down with Kiani and really do like a we did like a six hour interview split up into two parts and then wrote a sort of 3,000 word story on it for the spin-off and it's just an incredible story of how, you know, her grandparents and great-grandparents had been fighting for that land for generations, you know, in, in different ways. And they'd done so much. And it was just like the accumulation of, like, so many years and so many generations of work. And, you know, again, that, that those sort of stories, just seeing the the, the passage of time and, and the way, yeah, that sort of thing really speaks to me as well. As a story like that grows from that first meeting that you were at and got to observe through to it becoming national headlines, it starts off as a group of people with an idea. And that idea is going to get some pushback, but that pushback is contained. And then as the story grows and it hits the headlines, that pushback starts to get vociferous. And, and there's a lot of racism involved in responses in New Zealand to, to things like that. What was it like for you as a journalist who tracked that whole journey to see that, that pushback grow as well? And how did, you, how did you process that? I mean, I'd, I'd never experienced the racism personally. But I guess the thing I found interesting, because 
when I was at the Manuka Kuri, I was really trying to push our newsroom to cover it. It was really hard to get our bigger bosses to understand why it was a story. We had certainly had people above us saying, oh, it's just a small local thing. You know, and I, I remember Carmen talked about this idea of how Māori get pigeonholed is when they speak up for themselves, they're called protesters or they get sort of singled out as being angry. And, mm. and, and almost like we had to play into that narrative to even just get our editors to let us send a photographer you know like we didn't have a, any photographers at the Manuka Courier so to get a photographer from the main newsroom to go out there we had to really excite them with these sort of narratives like oh this, you know these protesters are occupying land you know and like you know you look back and that was kind of on one hand we were trying to amplify the story that to me was really important but at the same time, we were also playing into some of those negative narratives just to get our own, I guess, newsrooms to take, to give us the resources to cover that. Or, you know, I, I sent out a reporter and she just spent the whole day out there, which was sort of a no-no because the reporters are expected to, you know, pump out two or three stories a day. And, and so let her to do a story, you know, which she wouldn't produce anything for that day or that week was just on this one topic was kind of frowned upon. How did you how did you process that sense of having to push and speak about it in a way that might not have been fully reflective of who you are in order to get some focus on the story? And there's there's talk these days around moral injury. When we do things or feel like we have to do things that go against our value system, but we feel like we've got to do it to achieve something bigger. But that's like uh, death by a thousand cuts, essentially, if it goes on for too long. So how did you deal with that? I mean, I still struggle with that in all, all, many of the stories. I mean, often it feels like the journalist is like the sacrificial lamb in order to get the story that needs to be told. You know, like the de- doing the death knocks, you know, if there was a suicide in our area, we would get the newsroom directors at the, above us saying, you know, is there a suicide note? Can you find a, you know, a, a more sensational angle on the suicide? And you're just like, far out. Because we, 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 we would have the local connections to the family, but we were not, you know, and, and, and sort of being told off, well, why aren't you pushing your journalists to um, dig into that sort of stuff? But, I mean, it was a, it's something I probably still struggle with, writing stories about real estate prices, which you know are going to be read in two ways. One, it will help pump the tyres of the industry a bit more when it doesn't need to be, and also knowing it will make a whole bunch of other people feel totally incapable of entering the industry or entering the market so it, you do it all the time and it's a hard thing yeah I, I don't know what the I, I think it just it wears you down a bit and so that's probably why at times I've I've gone oh, I want to leave and be a comms person and then you realize actually no I don't <laughs> yeah. come back but there isn't an easy like oh yeah this is how I deal with it yeah it's an issue I'd, I'd probably like to not in this conversation but just in general I'd like to push into more just that moral injury that many journalists feel and the even the trauma they're dealing with because the suicide for instance having to go and chase that and talk to people and try and find out information. Uh, you're dealing with people who are experiencing trauma, but the journalist, to a degree, is experiencing trauma in that situation as well. I think we need more focus on that and understanding that within the industry. I do think, though, that there's a group of people in our society, you know, whether they're doctors, lawyers, or journalists, who who have to 
experience some of that injury mm. because the story is too important not to delve into. And there's definitely not going to be some, there's going to be some bad consequences to that. I can see why it, it pushes into those icky areas because they're so, there's a sense of, well, a good story will help create change. Mm. I, I, I think around some of that suicide stuff, it's just about clicks, which is disappointing. And I think, you know, there's always going to be that. But I think there's a, there's also, that's the role, that's the, the journalist, that's the burden a journalist carries is being willing to be the awkward person who goes and asks that awkward question when no one really wants to see you or talk to you about it and um, having to wear that kind of shame, embarrassment, whatever. That is the the, the little struggle we have as journalists. But, you know, I, w- I sat in a court a couple of weeks ago and watched a defence lawyer try and defend a, a person who seemed very guilty and just thinking, man, how is th- this guy's going to go home? You know, he's wearing a moral injury from that experience in a way that I, I don't certainly have to yeah. carry. And ultimately for him and for journalists, it comes down to a belief in the bigger picture. So if you're defending someone who you believe is guilty, uh, there's a, there's that belief that this person also in the system deserves a defence, that that's part of how this plays out in a way that is just, no matter what we think about the legal system. So for the journalist, Journalists have a, most journalists that I've sat down with have a strong justice instinct. And so there's the sense that we experience the moral injury because these stories need to be told and change will not happen unless we go through this moral injury. So for me, the question is just uh, ongoing. How do we help journalists cope with that without burning out and being completely crushed by it or ending up being very cynical about, about the world? Coming back to Ihumato then, you push it and pushing, pushing to get the whole thing noticed and into stories. You've been to the meeting in 2014, 2015, 2019 at all, really, in my mind, that's when it completely blew up. How does that feel as a journalist, seeing the story go from being this thing that you're pushing, 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 to it just takes on a life of its own? It was incredible. And I guess in a sense, it was also like, wow, this story has just gone so far, you know, beyond anything I'm doing or what, you know, it almost felt like, oh, wow, this, I, I, I've missed the wave. There's a part of me, you know, I wanted to be the journalist who would tell that, that story as well, but it became so big and I wasn't operating in that space to be able to be that journalist. But also it's just like incredible, you know, I, I was, and it, I mean, in part of, part of 2019, I wasn't working as a journalist, so I was just going along as a, I guess, supporting the, the campaign and, you're down there and, and, you know, you're getting jostled by police and Stan Walker just happens to be down there and he starts singing a song while the police are, like, trying to arrest Panya And it's incredible. And, I mean, it was just an incredible thing to be witness of. And I guess that's what journalism is, right? It's just you're a witness of something. And, you know, I'd like to think you just take all those experiences and, and you, you put that into what you write later on down the track or what you produce. But, yeah, it was just an incredible, really amazing spiritual time and in, in the, the place used to, I used to just go down there after work or on the weekends almost because there was almost like a um like something in the air that you would breathe and it would just felt like electric it was just it was, just, it was amazing and so just to have that happen in our local community yeah, is is really special and that spiritual element is an interesting one. I got to visit there one day and I had a friend, uh, 
who was connected to the whole thing, showed me around. I was in my clerical collar. And there's a there's an untold story there, or, or a story that wasn't told in too many places about the spiritual element of the whole thing. I had friends who were involved leading church services there. Uh, I know that there was a lot of thought around that sort of thing, how that would work, how it would be open to people's sense of, of spirituality, which for me feels like um, not a uniquely Māori thing, but when I think through what it means, when I think through the place that Māori culture plays, there's just a there's a solid place for spirituality that often my own Pākehā culture, wider culture, doesn't really allow or is cautious of. I found that part of the whole thing fascinating. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'd, I'd just say I think I wrote a story about that. You did. Uh, <laughs> about a guy called Matt. Yeah, Matt Renata. Yeah, who became kind of crucial to that. And um, yeah, it is. it was amazing. And I mean... What do you say about it other than, yeah, I agree, it was incredible. And whether all those stories need to be told as well, sometimes they don't need to be told, they just need to be experienced. Because there are moments in time, sometimes when you tell a story, it never quite matches the reality. Because mm. I think everyone who experienced that would have taken something away from that as well. And again, and that was probably one of, the, one of my other frustrations as a journalist, is like you tell a certain story doesn't always mean it gets read or picked up or... Or even know. understood in yeah, the way yeah. that it was intended. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's the limitation yeah. of a story is there's an intent in how you write it and how you as a journalist experience something. And then there's uh, everything that a reader brings to it with their own cultural lens, their own life experiences. That means that they might take those words very differently from how it was intended. Uh, so there's a there's a tension there that every journalist got to reconcile themselves with as well. Can I ask, Ihumato, and your experience of that, has that had any long-term impact on how you view journalism and how you do what you do? I think it probably has just, in the back of my mind, I know that change is possible, that society can be good. You know, good decisions can be made. Governments can change their minds. All those sort of things that we generally don't think are true you know we tend to think in society that things are just getting worse and worse and that justice can't be you know righted or or bad decisions can't be made right and so I guess there's that always that thought in my mind and maybe it gives me hope that we can do cool things that can make a place like Mangere better and we can increase our voter turnout and you know people can live really healthy thriving lives but again I you know I forget those lessons pretty quickly you know COVID's <laughs> been pretty brutal and yeah at times it's, it felt like man this, the world is you know we've just been through these floods and severe weather events and it's like oh my goodness but um life keeps going doesn't it and things like Ihamato are like these flashpoints which remind us that you can believe in something and it can achieve the the success you 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 aim for and then that hope is something I really want to latch on to as a journalist and that's something probably I would say about my journalism is I I always try and find something to put some hope into and that's one thing I find really hard about journalism is we're often naming the problem but we're not really naming the solution and something I do try and come back to is like offering some hope to people or, or just let's show people the positive side of things you know I try and write as many positive stories about South Auckland as I can in my journalism 
because there's there's everyone knows the negative stats you know we don't need another story to tell us you know what some terrible rate of diabetes is or we, but we'd be great to hear a story about what are some of the really great solutions out there to diabetes rates mm. and so that's probably what i have taken out of Ihimato as well is that yeah sometimes hope also can be realized in terms of success yeah yeah, I like that, the vision that uh, journalism and a community journalism, journalism that is close to the people it's, it's talking about, has the ability to lift a community rather than just to, to right the wrongs. I think also, if I could offer any encouragement, Ihumato for you was years in the making. Not a lot of years, but it was still years in the making. And you would have got involved not, not necessarily knowing where it was going to go. It was just the right thing to report at the time. So there's an encouragement there too. Just in closing, the future of journalism in New Zealand, what do you imagine it to be? I mean, I, I'm following the AI, the chat GPT thing pretty closely and talking to journalists in some of the bigger newsrooms. And I, I think that will change journalism quite dramatically, I think. There is a templated way of doing journalism that we, a lot of journalists already use where you can, car accident happens, you can get X number of reactions and we can use Facebook and Twitter and YouTube to source up stuff. And so I think there will be an, an element of AI in our journalism in the future. And so what the future looks like for human journalists is um, probably being really good at sourcing really raw on-the-ground content that can't be sucked up out of um, the internet from social media by a bot. And, you know, people might say, oh, this is, you know, some kind of dystopian thing that you're imagining. But, I mean, the, the, the AI is just so incredible right now. You can just see the, the next iteration will be writing stories better and as well as journalists do currently. And so... What we have as humans is the ability to have conversations and draw out un- the unexpected and the un- the surprising facts, you know. And so as journalists, we need to be getting back to doing that. We can't just, yeah, approaching things with a sort of a templated kind of manner, which it, we, we can all fall into, I think. So, yeah, that's the future, I think, is probably more community journalism. <laughs> of course, that's a good that's a good coming back to the thing that you're most passionate about. That answer is fascinating, though, because I bet you if I'd asked you that same question this time last year, AI would not have got a mention, which just shows how quickly uh, the world of tech has changed just in the last few months. Uh, so it's going to be interesting just over the coming year, let alone further beyond that, yeah. to see how the AI changes things. But um celebration of community journalism uh, because I don't think a computer is ever going to be able to take the place of, of a human talking to another human, especially when it involves tragedy and justice. Uh, Justin, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Kia ora. Thank you very much. Ngā mihi nui, Justin. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series and of course thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Also thanks to my producers Josh Couch, Sam Donkin and Steph So Lavemao. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who'd like it. And remember to follow in your favourite app to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media, so we offer free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, 
Head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up, and the coffee, it's on us. Music